good morning, church. You may take your seats and uh, join me in a word of prayer. Father of lights, you are good and unchanging, and your purpose for us in all things at all times, they are also good. You've proven this by sending your Son, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and was made perfect by his suffering. We, your people, now pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate our minds to understand your word and to emulate Christ. Would you strengthen us in our faith to endure our trials that you have ordained for us? in order that we might be more like your son, Jesus. We ask this with a view to glorifying his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn them to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. It's just after Hebrews in the New Testament. And if you were looking at the title of our sermon, you might be wondering why The title for our sermon today is Why Trials and Why Me? And the reason I chose this title was because I know several believers in general, not even just at this church, who have been coming face to face with adversities that are testing their faith. And I know that they might not say it, but I believe that our natural tendency in our flesh when bad things happen, is to ask, why trials? Why me? Like my friend and fellow minister of the gospel who had his car stolen off his driveway last Sunday, or a brother in the Lord who recently suffered his third seizure, which, for reasons that are unexplained, we also know of another brother who is awaiting a scan for his liver as he battles his health, uh, his health issues. And of course, last week, encountering a family member who I know personally who was recently scorned and shunned by another family member because of her faith in Christ. And who could forget the increasing number of faithful members of our church who are grieving the loss of a loved one. And all of these examples, again, are people that I've encountered in just the past few weeks, most of whom are in our congregation, and I'm sure that there's no shortage of trials among you who sit here today. And I don't know about you, but when life gets hard, I need to be reminded about who God is. Amen? I need to be reminded about why God permits trials in my life. Because it's in moments or seasons of trial that we're tempted to question God's purposes in allowing them, and also tested or so tempted to question his character. You see, trials have the unique ability to actually cloud our vision of God and distort his character. After all, how many people do you know personally who cannot reconcile God being good with the problem of human suffering and evil? This is an enormous stumbling block in our world, isn't it? And many people who are among those people were formerly called 
Christians or would formerly profess themselves to be Christians. But we, even we who name the name of Christ and live out our faith, we too can become offended at God sometimes, if we're honest, as we doubt his gospel's purpose in our adversity. But thankfully, this isn't a new trial. This isn't a new circumstance in the history of God's church. Believers from all generations have been suffering and have been learning of God's faithfulness and his goodness to them in the midst of the most painful and horrific circumstances. And as we turn to our passage now, we are going to be watching as James exhorts the early church of Jerusalem about how to live in tribulation. Join me now as I read our passage aloud and we hear the words of God. James 1, 1 1-4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now you can clearly see that the, the author of, our, of this letter here is James, but we're not referring to the Apostle James who was the brother of John. We're actually referring to James, the half-brother of Jesus, also known as James the Just. He wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a leader in the church of Jerusalem, a church that was enduring various trials. In verse 1, we see James identifying himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a testament to the power of the Holy Spirit working in unbelieving hearts. Because in John 7, we see James noted for his unbelief and actually sarcastically taunting the Lord Jesus Christ regarding who he was and his ministry. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that James would come to faith after seeing Christ resurrected from the grave. Seeing the risen Christ himself, he could not deny the reality of who he was. And growing in faith, he would become a leader, joining the apostles at Pentecost, and then helping build the church. They referred to him as a pillar. Now, He's writing this letter before the gospel was regularly shared with the Gentiles. And he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who he refers to the 12 tribes, refers to as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, this was the church of Jerusalem, the early church. And it was a persecuted church that was scattered as they fled from their homeland into Palestine. And by way of consequence... These Jewish believers were actually suffering immensely, some of them falling into abject poverty, among other health circumstances. And these trials would be rattling how they lived out the gospel. They would be rattling how they could reconcile their faith with their circumstances, especially amidst suffering. And, And this is why James is actually saying that this is a topic of 
first importance here. And that's why we see him moving quickly from his introduction immediately to exhort these believers to stand firm amidst their trials and embrace the purpose of their trials to strengthen their faith. And so in verse 2, we see James calling the church to embrace the the Christian's mindset when facing trials. In verse 3, we see him revealing God's purposes for the Christian who is facing trials. And then in verse 4, we see James complete his logic by reminding Christians about the end result of going through trials. Let's begin by looking at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is calling the church to reconsider the way that they perceive their trials or their adversities or their challenging circumstances. And this word count is a financial term, and in this context, it means to evaluate. To evaluate. And this is why some versions say, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's not a common tendency for us, though, to do this, is it? In fact, The moment that I fall into adversity, I think the number one way that I respond is either grumbling under my breath, thinking sinful thoughts, or even honking my horn a little bit too much on Highway 7. (laughs) Okay? It's not common for us to to react like this. In fact, it's much more normal to do that. And sometimes... Depending on the severity of our trials, we might actually accuse God of injustice. I don't deserve this, Lord. How could you? This is why James immediately exhorts the believers to see past their adversity into the purpose for it. He understood that trials could derail the faith of believers. And to keep them on track, he's urging them to live their lives through, and to see them through the gospel's lens. And consider it all joy. Now, we will be discovering the reasons for our joy in verses 3 and 4. But for now, let's actually see what count it all joy does not mean. Because when you read this text, you might be thinking that, okay, to be a Christian, I must consider my pain joy. I must enjoy my trials. And I must think that my suffering in and of itself is good. Okay? But that's not what this text is saying. We are called to renew our minds, to discern God's will, yes. And yes, we are called to have joy in the midst of our circumstances, no matter what we are suffering. But the scripture is not calling us to derive our joy from trials in and of themselves. David Mathis, pastor of Cities Church and editor at DesiringGod.org, says this. He says this, when James charges us to count it all joy, he does not mean that all our pain, all our trials, all our hardships are joys in and of themselves. Pain is pain, not joy. Trials are trying, not sources of pleasure. Rather, what James has for us here is what the gospel of Christ provides. It's a lens on life and a true vantage point on reality through which even life's most painful trials have a vital part to play in our joy. You see, we as Christians have a unique and powerful perspective that we can access 
to see God's good purposes in our trials. And we are going to have plenty of opportunities to do that, aren't we? You're either in a trial or coming out of a trial or going back into one in the Christian life. And that's why James does not say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials of various kinds. Rather, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You see, equipping new believers about the mindset about facing trials was actually basic discipleship in the, in the days of the early church. In Acts 14.22, we see the apostles strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3.3, we see Paul echoing what Luke wrote in Acts to the church of Thessalonica, saying this, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what, Paul? Meeting what, James? Afflictions and trials of various kinds. From the traffic jam on Highway 7 to the doubled workload on an already exhausting week, a sleepless night with an inconsolable baby, persecution, from family members, deep and crushing loneliness, falling on hard financial times, grieving the death of a close loved one. These are but few of the trials that we are going to face as believers, and some of you are actually facing these trials right now. Trials vary, and they vary based on God's wisdom in determining their necessity. In 1 Peter 1, 6, we read this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Christian, you might not think that the trial that you are enduring is necessary, but God does. Do you trust his wisdom? Because God doesn't waste one moment of our trial, nor one ounce of the pain that we suffer. He uses it for our good and his glory. And this is the reason why God uses and and allows trials in our lives to develop steadfastness in our spiritual character. Look back in our passage with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God's purpose for us in our trials is our steadfastness. And that's our second point, God's purpose in our trials, our steadfastness. Here in verse 3, Paul, or sorry, James is telling the early church that God's purpose in permitting persecution and poverty is to test their faith in order to make them steadfast. Trials are God's way of testing and authenticating our faith. First Peter says that trials prove the genuineness of our faith. And was it not Jesus himself who explained this in the parable of the sower, highlighting that trials would actually reveal who was who 
and whose faith was real. In Mark 4, we see Christ portraying the, hero, the rocky ground hearer of the gospel. And this is someone who hears the gospel and immediately receives it with joy, only to fall away when the hard times come. In Mark 4, 16 and 17, we read the words of Christ. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When tribulation, then when tribulation and persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. How many of us know someone who came to church, sang the songs, attended step one and step two, and then when it came to putting their faith into practice, when life went awry, they were nowhere to be found. Their reactions to their trials actually proved that they were without root. They weren't steadfast in their faith and did not possess true saving faith. What about us? Maybe our family members and friends don't relate to us the same way anymore after we've become believers. Or if we are believers, once we actually start embracing the claims of Christ and walking by faith in a more mature way, they start to act different. Are you going to fall away because of their disdain for Christ? Are you going to fall away because they're upset at you for loving Jesus more than anything or anyone? Here's a question for us as members at Hope Markham. Are we going to let the trials that happened to us as a church two years ago cause us to fall away from the faith? Or are we going to see this as an opportunity to draw closer to God and walk with steadfastness by faith? You see, God employs trials to do his work for him, to develop the quality of steadfastness in our faith. And he wants to work in us this quality of steadfastness, otherwise translated in our passage as patient endurance. Now, as I studied this passage, I was reminded of my high school experience. I played on the Pickering High School Trojans between the years of 2002, 2006, well, 2007 too. And our coaching staff, they knew what it took to help us to perform well and to contend for the provincial championships almost every year. Each season, our league games would start in December. But I can assure you, during the first week of school, we would start practice in September without much dribbling of a basketball, if I'm honest. You see, we weren't in the gym shooting hoops as much as we were on the track and on the hills. In the preseason, we would be running sprints until we fainted, some of us having to visit the garbage can on the side. Okay? We did strength training until our muscles burned. The Rub A535 couldn't save us. Okay? Sometimes you'd find us laying in the hallways after practice, just trying to muster the strength, <laughs> using our lockers to help us get off the floor. And stand up. You see, our coaching staff pushed our bodies to the limits and beyond. And actually, we thought they were crazy. Okay? Another down and back, are you crazy? Don't you know I, I have nothing left in me? You're sadistic, coach. And we actually question a lot of their training methods a lot of the time. 
But the purpose of their methods was to prepare us to perform with endurance. And it paid off. Because in our winning seasons, while other teams were panicked and exhausted at the end of the second and third quarters, we were found patient and composed, sticking to our game plan and controlling the pace of our game, wearing down our opponents with our endurance. And I share this experience with you to illustrate what James is revealing about God's purposes in our trials. God is testing our faith to produce this patient endurance of faith that endures to the end and is saved. This is the reason or part of the reason why we count it all joy when we meet various trials of all kinds. The reason for our joy in our trials is that we know that God is at work in us, developing the qualities of Christ-like character that could not be developed in any other way except but through our trials. Like the coach of a championship-winning team, God is employing temporary suffering to guarantee our spiritual endurance. What did Paul say? This momentary affliction is, is nothing in comparison to the weight of glory we will experience when we are with Christ in heaven. And elsewhere in Romans 5, 3 to 5, he says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We might be questioning God's purpose of allowing suffering, And at times, we might even doubt his goodness. But the sober and wise Christian who knows God and his words recognizes the purposes of God in their trials. And they can see the end result of going through trials. Their maturity in Christ. Their maturity in Christ. Let's look back with our passage now. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials have a unique ability to chisel away at the sin in our lives and sanctify us. First Peter talks about trials being fiery. And, 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 and bringing the dross and the impurities of our souls to the surface so God can wipe those away. So our faith can shine. They have the ability to put things into perspective, don't they, our trials? Suddenly the allure of the world isn't tugging on our hearts as strongly. Suddenly our trust in favorable circumstances or our trust in man is now transferred to our faithful God. Suddenly, our longing for heaven and the return of Christ is cultivated in ways that it could never have been. When we remain steadfast, patiently enduring our trials by faith in Christ, something effectually is happening. Something effectual is happening. We might not see it, we might not feel it, but we are being perfected and we are being completed. And we must let steadfastness have its full effect. That we might be perfect. That we might be lacking in nothing. So steadfastness 
although essential, is not the end in and of itself. We're not just enduring and running this race forever. The end goal of our steadfastness is actually our conformity to Christ. Conformity to the image of Jesus Christ or looking more like Jesus. That's what our trials do for us. Now we see that James says in this text that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we might hear the word perfect and be like, oh, this trial is actually just proven that I am not perfect. Okay? As is what usually happens with me. And actually, we see Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 saying, Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We've all heard those things. And at first glance, they can be confusing. Because no one is perfect. But here in our text, James is actually fleshing out what being perfect means in that context. Reverend Kevin Gardner comments about this quality of lacking nothing and being perfect by saying this. He says that it is that being perfect and lacking nothing is to display the full range of the glorious attributes of Christ that are ours to share in. That means us being perfect and complete does not mean sinless perfection as we go through trials. However, it does mean that trials grant us the capacity and the ability to look more like our Savior and resemble him as we bear up under our trials. And this is the gospel for us, church, in our trials. This is the gospel in James here. It's the reason for our joy in our hardship. Milton Vincent, in his book, Gospel Primers for Christian, unpacks this well. Listen to what he says. The gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. And every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purposes in me. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere along all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. So the Christian who's in distress this morning, the Christian who's saying, why this trial, God? Why me? You can now respond to your unbelief today. And you can say this, God has ordained this trial and is using it in my life to test, preserve, and authenticate my faith in Christ. And he does so lovingly for my good with the purpose of conforming me to the image of his son, Jesus. I always thought, God, why? Why do you use trials? Why do you, why do you permit spiritual exhaustion to develop endurance? To me, at one point in my faith walk, it didn't make sense. But the result of our trials, the the, the working of them in our lives, produces something, an effectual work in our souls to endure to the end and be saved. And it actually works Christ in us. Now, one of the most practical ways that we can posture ourselves, whether we are in trials or not, 
is to emulate Christ in his times of trial. You see, Christ in his tribulation bore up under his trials and glorified God like no human ever has or ever will. And he did not only conquer in such a way because he was God, but he conquered through his trials because he knew God's word. He was dependent on God in prayer and he was in fellowship with his brothers and actively sang to God in times of distress. And so I want to examine four ways that we can emulate Christ in times of trouble, that we can look to the example of our Savior. And first we see his example in knowing and memorizing Scripture. What was it that kept Christ from succumbing to Satan's temptations in the desert? How was he able to confound the Pharisees and discern the will of God in all circumstances? What kept him grounded on the way to the cross when Peter told him, Lord, far be it from you? It wasn't just because he was God. He was a man dependent on God who in the power of the Holy Spirit was devoted to knowing and memorizing the word of God. The word made flesh knew the word of God. And we too can devote ourselves to knowing God's word to respond rightly to our trials. Yes, it is true that trials can cause us to lose our spiritual footing. And many times in my own life, it has. But God's word is a sure foundation that we can rely on in times of tribulation. In fact, as I want to prepare you for more trials in your life by reading to you the words of Christ in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, when he says this, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Church, we know that the winds and the waves are going to beat against our lives sometimes, sometimes threatening to sweep us away. But if you build your life on the words of Christ, you will stand at the end of your trial. So we see Christ's example in memorizing Scripture. Secondly, we want to see his posture of prayer. Yes, it is true that he was filled with all fullness with the Holy Spirit in such a way that was unfathomable to us. But we see him conquer his tribulation and distress by devoting himself to prayer in dependency upon the Father. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You following me here, church? You following Peter's train of thought? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ endured his sufferings by entrusting himself to God in prayer and chose to display that kind of perfect humility 
to lay aside the privilege of his godhood and embrace the limitations of a man in order to exemplify who we are to be in times of trial. If the Son of God withdrew to pray and poured out his soul in anguish in the garden, sweating drops of blood as he accepted God's will, how much more should we be found praying when we're suffering? James says it perfectly to us in James chapter 5, verse 13, a lot more direct. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Are you holding in your anxieties? Are you allowing them to weigh you down? Go to God in prayer. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Thirdly, we can emulate Christ by being in fellowship with other believers in times of trial. Because if there was ever a time where you would be tempted to isolate yourself, it's when life is overwhelming and hard. It's when life is overwhelming and hard. And yes, we do see Christ withdrawing himself from his disciples to commune with the Father. We do see him retreating to pour out his soul in prayer. But that does not mean that he did not prioritize fellowship, especially in times of suffering. Matthew 26 records this when he says that Jesus began to feel sorrowful and troubled. And this is what he said to his disciples before he went to pray in the garden. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. If the Son of God disclosed himself to his disciples and kept them with him in tribulation, how much more should we intentionally disclose our feelings and our pain and our sufferings to our brothers and sisters in Christ when we're going through hardship. Because there are no Lone Ranger hero Christians. And unlike Christ, who was sinless and needed nothing from his disciples, we need each other. Hebrews 3 tells us that we are to exhort one another day by day so that our hearts might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And at at the end of our letter, James tells us that we are to be confessing our sins to one another, that we might be healed. So my question to you is, who do you call when you're tempted to sin? Who do you call when the tears won't stop flowing? Do you have any relationships, deep and lasting, with believers who can help you along and bear your burdens to fulfill the law of Christ, because that's what we're called to, church. We're called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That lunch you send to that ailing family, that house you clean for that pregnant wife, those things, those things matter, and they really do help. Finally, we can emulate Christ by singing in our times of trial as a means to strengthening our souls in God. In Mark 14, we actually see Christ demonstrating his faith in, his, in the greatest trial anyone's ever gone through, the most tribulation anyone's ever experienced or will ever experience. As he, takes, as he begins to take his steps toward Golgotha, we actually see him demonstrating this steadfastness of faith before he leaves the upper room with his disciples by singing a hymn that would have been sung at the end of the Passover meal, Psalm 118. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, they would sing. I want you to imagine Christ lifting his voice with his disciples in song, singing of God's steadfast love, knowing that he is about to be publicly executed as he bears the sins of God's people and is crushed under the wrath of God. As followers of Christ, we too should sing of God's love and his goodness to us. Because when we sing the gospel amidst a world filled with trouble, we too can receive the encouragement and the filling of the Spirit as God equips us and empowers us to endure times of trial. Horatio Spafford, an American lawyer and Presbyterian elder, knew this intimately. Two years after losing his real estate investments in North Chicago to what is now known in our day as the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, he believed it right to send the family on a vacation to England to hear and support his good friend D.L. Moody. Not sure if that name rings a bell for you. D.L. Moody was going to be there preaching and he wanted to join him. But late business uh, ventures and issues there kind of kept him tied up at the office. So he sent his family ahead of him by way of steamship across the Atlantic. And on November 22nd, 1873, that same ship that he sent his family on would be struck by another sailing vessel, killing 226 people on board, including Spafford's four precious daughters. His wife Anna would be their family's only survivor. And upon arriving to Wales, she sent a telegram to Spafford that read, Saved. Alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled by sea to his wife, his ship would approach and begin to cross over the waters where his daughters tragically lost their lives. And instead of cursing God in that moment, you know what he did? He penned one of the most soul-strengthening hymns still sung by us today. It is well with my soul. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Hallelujah. Trials have fortified and authenticated the faith of so many saints down through the ages, from the early church in Jerusalem, fleeing persecution, to Horatio Spafford, to us. We are here because they endured to the end of their life's journey, trusting in Christ, no matter what. And so for those of us asking, why trials? Why me? Instead of taking up offense at God of his choice for trial for you, whether that's stubbing your toe on the door or walking into a funeral home to bury that family member, instead of giving up your faith in his promises, choose by the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of your pain to consider it joy 
when you meet these trials with a view to seeing God's goodness in them. God's purpose in your trials, his good intention is that you might be steadfast, enduring in faith into eternity as you grow to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. We too can sing with confidence that it is well with our souls as we face these trials with joy in Christ. And so let's pray and then let's stand and sing to our God as we respond with faith in his word. Dear Lord, you are a very present help in time of trouble. You are our refuge and our strength when we are exposed and weakened in our faith. Many of us, your people here today, are distressed and exhausted by our various trials. But though you slay us, we will yet praise you. Please help us to have faith and not doubt and to consider it all joy when we meet such trials, knowing that the testing of our faith is developing the endurance that we need to make it to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.